1: We have a chance to ride out this Omicron wave without shutting down our country once again.
2: You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. We need to recognise that Russia is now calling the shots here.
0: Mahat in their sleaze with a divided party. A Prime Minister losing the support of his backbenchers yeah. and governing shambolically. Yeah.
3: Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepker.
1: Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. Well, coming up on today's show, we're looking at Scotland's ambitions to transform its economy with Green MSP Ross Greer. We'll also hear from Thomas Main of Chatham House on the UK's oligarch problem.
3: Now, MPs are debating proposed sanctions on Russia's super-rich today. The former minister, David Davis, wants oligarchs in line to be sanctioned to have their assets frozen immediately. The government says that new amendments will ensure that it can act faster and remove red tape to impose further sanctions. But the opposition leader, Keir Starmer, is pushing for more to be done.
2: Everybody understands why we can't have a no-fly zone and military assistance in the traditional way, and that means sanctions have to be as powerful as they can possibly be. We will be pushing the government to go further and faster.
1: Russian President Vladimir Putin reiterated over the weekend that the war will continue until Ukraine accepts his demands, dimming hopes for a negotiated settlement. Putin says Ukraine must demilitarize and he's made clear his goal is to remove the current government. Russia has said it will reopen humanitarian corridors for civilians to leave uh, several Ukrainian cities, but previous efforts at at opening escape routes have collapsed.
3: Well, joining us now is Ross Greer, who is a member of the Scottish Parliament for West Scotland from the Scottish Green Party. He is also their finance spokesperson. Ross, welcome to the programme. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. So war reaches Europe. Your party is sticking to the idea that an independent Scotland would be better off not joining NATO, despite the SNP dropping that pledge. How would you keep Scotland safe without joining NATO?
4: So it's first worth explaining why the Scottish Greens would not have our independent nation join NATO. And it's NATO in its specific current form. That's what we object to um, on principle. NATO is a first strike nuclear alliance. That means NATO reserves the right to launch the first strike in a nuclear war. And the Greens in Scotland, just like Greens across the rest of the world, are fundamentally opposed to the existence of nuclear weapons. They are evil, and we don't believe anyone has the right to launch that first strike. What we are absolutely in favour of, though, is cooperation for the sake of collective defence and security. That does not necessarily need to happen through NATO. In fact, we've seen the European Union transform in the space of the last week to a fortnight in terms of the collective defence and security uh, desire that EU member states have got. And this is for Ukraine, which is not yet an EU member state.
3: Our OK, but the Scotland EU has being... no standing army. The EU is a long way from being able to replace the North Atlantic alliance. And, you know, current NATO members have admitted effectively that they need to ramp up military spending enormously now. And, you know, that Putin's invasion of Ukraine has been a real wake up call. We need to get real about security.
4: We do need to get real about security, but the way that we keep ourselves safe, the way that we prevent conflict from happening in the future, is not always about spending more on our military. It's not always about having a bigger military. And, of course, an independent Scotland would have defence forces, just like any other state. But a huge part of the collective security failure in Europe, that's a NATO and a European Union failure, over the last 30 years has been the reliance on Russian gas, particularly since 2014. Russia didn't invade Ukraine a couple of weeks ago. Russia invaded Ukraine eight years ago. And for eight years, Europe has collectively failed in what should have been a really urgent transition away from our level of reliance on Russia, not just for energy, but for a lot of other commodities as well, but particularly for gas. So if we're talking about collective security arrangements, it's not necessarily about how big our military is. It's about how we can make sure that we've got a secure energy supply a secure food supply etc that's what collective security should be about that's what we should be spending far far more on because that's where we've really as a continent failed over the last 30 but, years but that's on the
1: size exactly of that it should be on the size of that military germany which is a nato member has acknowledged it needs to spend m- much more on defence given the the russian threats sure, Surely a scotland outside nato would be even more vulnerable and would need to ramp up spending Uh, even more than if it was in NATO?
4: Well, you look at countries that are outside of of NATO at the moment. So take Ireland as the the most obvious example for Scotland, as our nearest neighbour. Ireland doesn't feel under immediate threat of Russian invasion at the moment. The the threat to a country uh, like ours on the western periphery of Europe is obviously fundamentally different to the threat faced by Ukraine, uh, a country that's actually bordering, or even uh, like the Baltic states, EU member states that are uh, bordering Russia. So we're in a very different situation. What security and defence means for each country is different. That's why the biggest contribution that Scotland can make to Europe's collective security against Russia or against any other hostile actor is through energy independence. Scotland is capable of producing far, far more energy than we need for our own domestic purposes. So the greatest contribution we can make to Europe's collective defence is making sure that we are exporting clean, Mm. green, renewable energy to our partners, to our allies, so okay. that they can transition away from that Russian gas as quickly as
3: possible. Okay, well, that is the issue, you know, at the heart of this conflict, yes. But the final backstop, you know, more broadly is military deterrence. Now, I asked an SNP member only about 10 days ago about the importance of Trident and Britain's current nuclear deterrent. She sounded pretty flabbergasted. Now, n- nuclear accident or war has become relevant in this uh, conflict. Would an independent Scotland lease back that port where Trident is currently housed and if not doesn't that threaten the whole of the British Isles? What's your view on Trident?
4: But the Greens are unequivocally opposed to the, the renewal of Trident to the existence of nuclear weapons. What we should be talking about here is nuclear disarmament and de-escalation. So a country like Russia is obviously not going to disarm, not going to reduce its nuclear stockpile unless there is a reciprocal arrangement. The biggest success is in nuclear disarmament, the biggest steps towards peace that have been taken over the last 50 years, whether it was with the Soviet Union or the Russian Federation, where when Western nations agreed to simultaneously reduce their stockpiles. So instead of talking about how the UK should increase or secure or expand or renew its nuclear arsenal, what we should be talking about is how do we come to an agreement between the nuclear powers, particularly the UK and the US on one side, and Russia on the other side. How do we start talking now about a collective agreement to reduce those nuclear stockpiles? Because what we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment is not an argument for the existence of nuclear weapons. It's a compelling argument for us to get rid of nuclear weapons as quickly as we possibly can. And an independent Scotland will certainly play absolutely no role in allowing the UK to continue with its nuclear arsenal. I mean, these weapons are wicked. They are evil. If if we're talking about the worst-case scenario here, I do not want the last thing that my country does in its existence to be wipe another country off the face of the map. What we should be focusing on is avoiding that happening in the first place. But you know, this isn't for me just about being a, a politically green, but as a Christian, the existence of nuclear weapons is wicked, it's evil, and it simply can't be excused. That's not me saying that we shouldn't defend ourselves, that we shouldn't have collective security arrangements. I'm enthusiastic about those. I want us to talk much more about what they would mean in practice. But, but what we should be talking about now collectively is reducing nuclear stockpiles, not expanding them.
1: Ross, you talk about uh, energy independence. The UK, including Scotland, is is a leader in wind power, particularly offshore wind power. But we cannot have a energy generation system entirely dependent on wind, can we? We need some We need some backup. Uh, and One of Scotland's two nuclear power plants has just been uh, decommissioned. Uh, what is the alternative to nuclear? I presume you don't want more nuclear plants in Scotland.
4: No, Scotland definitely doesn't need more nuclear. And even if you were a supporter of nuclear power, the length of time it would create to bring new nuclear online, never mind the cost, just makes it not not viable for the transition we need, either for security reasons or because of the climate. But Scotland has about 1% of Europe's population and about 25% of Europe's collective renewable generation capacity. And that's not just in wind. So we've got huge capacity in onshore and in offshore wind also in tidal and wave energy. We've got uh, a decent capacity for solar, uh, would you believe it? So what is absolutely essential, you're right, is a broad mix of energy sources. But it can and should be a broad mix of renewable sources. We've just seen the Scotland Mm. licensing uh, round, the first round's just taken place. That's 25 gigawatts of offshore wind that's going to be generated in Scotland through that. That is many times more than what we are Uh, currently generating. That is a huge economic opportunity for Scotland. But that is absolutely about our collective energy security as well. And that's the context that we should be having all these conversations in. So, yes, okay. a broad mix of energy sources, but a broad mix of renewable sources because that's the only future that we've got.
3: OK, in the Scottish Government's economic transformation plan for Scotland that's just been released and you're part of a, um, a coalition agreement with with the Scottish Government, in the very first, tar- very first line, it talks about Scotland's economic potential being based on natural resources and that surely is only oil and gas. And how are you going to address that when that is sort of yesterday's fuel in a way and also the idea of kind of productivity that is the biggest concern in terms of you know Scotland boosting um boosting its economic economy going forwards
4: So the Greens and the Scottish National Party are in government together, as you say. It's not a formal coalition. So it's what we call a cooperation agreement, uh, which is two parties in government together, but we don't necessarily agree on everything. So we we agree to disagree. Oil and gas is an area where the Greens and the SNP don't entirely um, agree. So the SNP accept the direction of travel is towards the transition. But the Greens obviously want to see that go much further and much quicker. Um, But the natural resources that we're talking about in Scotland absolutely include a renewable generation capacity. So Scotland has huge renewable energy capacity, but it's not just about that as well. Uh, The potential to create thousands of jobs in the forestry industry in Scotland is really substantial. That's a sustainable uh, resource for the construction industry, if you're uh, talking about it in that regard. There's other uses for it. There's a lot of jobs to be had in nature restoration. So when we're talking about the vast natural resources of our country, we're not just talking about North Sea oil and gas. Indeed, what we're talking about is how we transition away from North Sea oil and gas.
1: Mm -hmm.
5: Com.
3: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.
1: Well, let's take a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And we're joined with that by uh, Bloomberg's Leanne Gerings. Leanne, thanks for joining us today. Now, the government's planning to pass the uh, economic crime bill. We've talked about this a lot in just one day today. Just talk us through what they're what the thinking is behind this.
6: Ewan, it's a pleasure to be here. Yes, a lot of work ahead of them today. And as the situation in Ukraine enters day 12, things on the ground are becoming increasingly deadly. And we have heard from the UN that over 1.5 million refugees have now crossed neighbouring borders to safety. But the British government, as you mentioned, will introduce emergency legislation to take action against wealthy Russians in the country. Now, this is after fierce criticism that the government has has not done enough and has acted too slowly. So ministers are putting forward amendments to allow the UK to adopt penalties for oligarchs that have been imposed by both the EU and the US. So, so far, the UK has sanctioned 15 really wealthy Russians. And this is far fewer than the EU to date, who has cracked down on between 30 and 40 Oligarchs. Now, the government was also going to be speeding up the deadline that companies declare their true owners from 18 to 6 months. This is important when it comes to sanctioning because a lot of the properties are in the name of shell companies and not actually in the name of people who do own them. So, so far, the British government is doing mm. lots, but people are feeling it's just not enough. There were concerns that Boris Johnson could face a backbench rebellion over fears oligarchs could literally Liquidate more than £1.5 billion in assets before these laws even come into place. But despite this, it's widely expected MPs will vote through all stages of the economic crime bill
3: in a single sitting today. Okay, yes, and the government uh, expecting to increase the number of visas granted to Ukrainians very, very quickly. That's the other aspect of the UK's help. But away from the Ukraine, just for a moment, on the pandemic, is flexible working going to last forever? Because we've had more data on that.
6: And Caroline just picking up on the visa thing 50 visas have been granted so far to Ukrainians so the government is pushing on that. Okay this is so interesting isn't it because when the pandemic struck Caroline and you and You know, how the world worked and how we interacted with each other just dramatically changed. I didn't feel like I saw you for years. But many people predicted and secretly hoped that the world of work would transform forever. But according to a new survey of UK managers, there appears to be a remote chance that flexible life will actually continue. So only thirty four percent of managers out of seven hundred and fifty surveyed said they believe that remote working will stay in place after the pandemic. That is despite six 66% 66% supporting current policies and people replying also said they expected initiatives addressing poor mental health among employees to be rolled back mm-hmm. and this is in real sharp contrast to what employees and workplaces thought would happen so this is where things do get tricky as many companies now have employees who want a flexible life.
3: Leanne Garins, thank you so much for joining us with the latest in well Ukraine but also other stories today.
1: Well, as we've been saying, the MPs are voting and debating the new bill designed to tackle Russian dirty money. The economic crime bill, as we've heard, will stop foreign owners of property in Britain from hiding their identity and expand government powers to investigate the source of their wealth. But MPs from all sides have accused the Prime Minister of being too slow to punish Vladimir Putin's associates for the invasion of Ukraine.
3: Okay, we have a couple of uh, interviews on this topic, on uh, the UK's uh, kleptocrat credentials. Earlier I spoke to Thomas Maine, visiting fellow at the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House, and asked him whether oligarchs are really going to suddenly sell, see their assets frozen.
7: Yeah, I think it's been 20 years uh, too slow to be, to be honest. Um, for years, we've we've uh, allowed this money to flow into into London, into our property markets. Uh, we've had warning signs: the poisoning of Litvinenko, the annexation of Crimea, the poisoning of Skripal, and uh, only now when this, the, you know, terrible. Uh, war invasion has been has been uh, launched on on Ukraine. Are we are we are we doing something? It's, it's definitely a case of too little, too late.
3: Okay. Do you think that the, the government will be able to then move forwards with the with the freezing of assets and also on the property register? There is a complaint um, that it's giving oligarchs too much time to sell up. The government's talking about six months you know, to tell officials uh, that, that you own a particular property. The opposition wants 28 days.
7: This is a, a great example of, of, of what I've been talking about. Um, this bill, uh, which, which, as you say, puts the owners of, of property on, on record... Is really supposed to be in uh, in effect now. Uh, the plans uh, date back to 2018. Uh, yes, we've had the pandemic and Brexit, which have delayed things. But but it's really uh, you know the dragging of the of the feet by this uh, by this uh, uh, government that has has caused this bill to be delayed. Uh, we are uh, implementing it now. That that's all all well and good. But as you say, too much time is going to be allowed for for these uh, people. Uh, who hide their ownership of property through offshore companies to uh, sell their, their their properties? And the final point, um, I, I, it's all about the the enforcement of this of, of this of this act. What we saw with with Companies House, our our Companies Register, uh, we introduced a a, a beneficial ownership uh, um, a bill, which means that if you own any company in the UK, you have to put your your the, the real owner on on record. Um, however, we know that the information submitted. To a company's house uh, is uh, in, in in many respects faulty, not checked. The people who submit false information are not prosecuted, and if this happens with this uh, bill that puts the owners of uh, property on record, the same thing is going to happen where we we have just information that we can't rely upon.
3: Okay, I mean, uh, you know, one puts the cynical point though: it is profitable in some ways, to, you know, to turn to turn a blind eye to this. I mean in the uk having said that um, you know civil society is reasonably strong why do you think there has been this sort of collective failure to really focus on on dirty money coming into the uk you know the rhetoric has been tough but as but as you point out the enforcement has been very feeble
7: well you have to say that that london is is a uh, one of the world's leading financial centers and and you know we we have attracted this kind of suspicious money for, for 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 many years and you have to wonder where there is uh, perhaps a lack of political will to to really open this uh, pandora's box um because our country relies on this, this suspicious uh, money or has relied on it for for many years
3: um do you sense that this is a moment where things change then in terms of the UK's um Views on 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 Russian money coming in on oligarchs is this a kind of watershed moment in your expectation?
7: I think so. I, I think it, it does um, indicate that perhaps we realise that 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 turning a blind eye to, to this kind of money uh, is a, a bad idea. Um, of course, there is a question about uh, you know whether okay, Russian money may be uh, you know linked to the to the Kremlin may become. Uh, Uh, You know, unacceptable. But of course, there's a lot of kleptocracies around the world who, uh, you know, undermine democracy in in different ways. Um, Hopefully, um, will will not uh, um, be of a mind to accept that money as well going forward.
3: And let's stick to our look at the UK's ties with Russian wealth. Earlier, I also spoke to Tom Burgess, a journalist who's done extensive work on corruption, dirty money, oligarchs. He is author of Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World. I asked him how well he thinks the UK has been doing on sanctioning Russia.
2: They are being slow. And uh, I think a cynic might say that that is because the, the sort of British ruling elite has for so many years thoroughly entangled itself um with those who have made great fortunes in kleptocracies right in in the corrupt the world's most corrupt dictatorships whether that be Russia or elsewhere and the boris johnson's government's uh propositions now seem to be basically about ostentatiously slamming the front door to one particular kleptocracy that's putin while um effectively leaving the back door open by continuing to allow financial secrecy in the UK economy.
3: Okay. Can one draw that line so clearly and distinctively then between Boris Johnson and the government and, you know, uh, and effectively what you're saying is government corruption? Can you make that accusation and, and back it up with with evidence, do you think?
2: I'm not quite talking about government corruption. I mean, obviously, we saw a lot of that during um, the COVID pandemic. I'm talking about something slightly subtler, so for my book, my book, I spent five years travelling the world hearing the testimonies of those who suffer under corrupt regimes, the victims of torture, the survivors of massacres and so on, but also trying to unpick the corruption itself and how the dictators loot their countries and then, um, through financial secrecy, shift that wealth into the West. Now what's been happening is that we've been paying a little bit of attention to uh, the corruption overseas, but almost none the corrupting effect this wealth has when it arrives. Now, this is something that can't be counted. Does it matter that Boris Johnson used to be occasionally whisked off to Spanish parties by the uh, rich um, son of a uh, former KGB officer? Does it matter that several major Conservative Party donors made their fortunes in Putin's ultra-corrupt system? You can't count that. But the question is, to what extent is that changing the norms of our system and making it more corrupt? Take mm-hmm. another example. To what extent is our legal system being put at the service of the few against the many, precisely the opposite of its purpose? I was in court last week, and um, I was very fortunate to have um, a wonderful judgment that threw out a case called, brought against my book by, um, by, by a London company owned by some oligarchs who appeared in it, and evidently, disliked what I had to say about them. Now, that is a case that came to court. A few others have recently, notably uh, the brilliant Catherine Belton's book Putin's People, but really what happens most of the time in this so-called lawfare is what we don't hear about. Every day, London law firms working on behalf of very rich people who have often made very dubious fortunes in these kleptocracies, Russia, China, the Middle East, Africa, and so on, and they are deciding what you and I get to do without deciding what you and I get
1: to read. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.